After you've marked hymn number 514, as Brother Harold had asked us to do, I would invite you to begin a series of studies with me, much like our young people have entered upon and embarked upon as they make preparation for the Bible Bowl to take place coming up in September, a little bit later this year. It has been announced that they will be endeavoring to study the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. Now, that book of 24 chapters, it sets before us much of what we can appreciate about the reign of King David. And I would suggest that we begin a series of studies ourselves, beginning this Sunday night, also on that book of 2 Samuel. As we proceed to study that, it'll be our hope, of course, that they will be encouraged and strengthened by it. But since it is an inspired book of God, that all of us might be encouraged also and have much to learn, even from the great stories found here in the heart of the Old Testament. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That famous refrain of Romans 15:4 reminds us that there is in fact needed and vital information even in the book of 2 Samuel for us to learn and make use of even today. As you can see, I've entitled the lesson for this evening, David, King of Judah. And the very title, in fact, is suggestive of what we shall learn somewhat shortly, that the kingship of David did not happen all at once, but rather it somewhat happened slowly, and as that took place, let us revisit briefly some introductory thoughts about the book of 2 Samuel and then move somewhat seamlessly into a discussion of chapter number 1. The Old Testament, just as is the case for the New, is rather logically and systematically presented. Though it consists of some 39 books, it falls into four rather natural divisions. The first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, form the Pentateuch, the role of the five-volume book. These set forth the law of Moses, all the basic fundamental aspects of what was required to specifically keep the law of God. Following that are 12 books of history, commencing with the book of Joshua and terminating with Esther. We see that this sets before our minds the basic character of the nation of Israel, how she was established, the things through which she traveled, and ultimately her demise in both the Chronicles as well as the Kings. Following that were five books of poetry, starting again with Job and ending with the beautiful Song of Solomon. We see the wonderful character poetically of the greatness of God's law, and our desire should ever be to follow it. The Old Testament then closes with 17 books of prophecy, starting with Isaiah and ending with Malachi. We notice that they are in fact historically placed inside the historical section, but that presents before us the labors of the prophets. These historical books, and 2 Samuel is one of them, focus on the nation of Israel, how it was established, who its leaders were, what befell the nation, what successes it enjoyed, and also what problems it encountered. All the while, we never veer far from appreciating the sovereignty of God and the greatness of what that people were called to be. In fact, can we not simply say that these historical books set before us the following beautiful thought, that Israel was a special people housed in a special land with a very special mission, namely to bring into the world a very, very special person, none other than Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And as that mission and that objective was set before them, they far too often failed to appreciate and fulfill the greatness that God had in store for them. And can we each not identify that even in ourselves? But nonetheless, God sent His prophets who called them back to a proper character before Him. 
And even we shall see that happen in the reign of David. But also notice some other remarks. That kingdom of Israel, though she was established in that book of 1 Samuel in essence, Saul was the first of her kings. For 40 years he reigned over her, and though he started in majesty, he somewhat ended in great failure. But following him we encounter David. David will be the sweet singer of Israel, as is described in 2 Samuel 23. And though that sweet singer is herein mentioned, we shall find shortly that the whole book of 2 Samuel focuses primarily on David. He is its principal theme and subject, as David himself strives to be a proper king over Israel. I've listed at the bottom of that statement, that's first screen, some things more factual in character about these books, such as Samuel. I've asked you to note with me that 1 Samuel details not only the establishment of the nation of Israel, but also much can be said from that book about the reign of Saul, her first king. And Samuel was the author of that book. When we arrive at 2 Samuel, its focus is on David, the second king of united Israel. We see that, however, it was not written by Samuel as the name may suggest. Samuel's death is recorded in 1 Samuel 25. Thus, when we come to this book, it is such that it, it would appear that Gad and Nathan were the ones who wrote it, based primarily on 1 Chronicles 29, 29. And then it ends with 1 Kings that details Solomon in the first 11 chapters in the reign that he enjoyed rather prosperously over the nation of Israel. 1 Kings, it would seem, was written by the prophet Jeremiah. But with that somewhat factual introduction... Let us turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Beginning in the character of this for opening chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, it would do us well to note that 2 Samuel is a continuation of 1 Samuel. It is rather a seamless presentation of the entirety of what began in 1 Samuel. Two significant events are listed near the close of 1 Samuel. They, in fact, will form an important part of what 2 Samuel chapter 1 will reveal. Let's spend a moment and recollect what they were. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, we have the continued ascendancy of David. Though his greatness previously had been set forth, in that chapter he himself was victorious over the Amalekites, having been given that victory by the greatness of God's presence through him. And in addition to that victory, we notice in the very next chapter is one of the most crushing defeats that Israel ever suffered. In the closing chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, we read about another battle in which Israel fought the Philistines. This time Israel was not victorious. In fact, she suffered a heartbreaking defeat. So serious was the defeat that two of those who in fact met their death as a part of it were none other than the king, Saul, and his son, Jonathan. Both of them had their lives in there at Mount Gilboa in 1 Samuel chapter 31. But that being said, that takes us very interestingly to the opening verses of 2 Samuel chapter 1. After David's return from that victory, at that time he was settled in a little village called Ziklag. That had been given to him by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 27. As David settled there, some two days elapsed. We recall very interestingly then that after he enjoyed just somewhat briefly that visit, a man whose name is not given made his way into the place of, Saul, of David's encampment and shared with him some rather interesting and amazing information. 
This man came and he looked rather bad to be somewhat frank about it. He had earth on his head and gave all the appearance of having greatly struggled to make it to that place. When asked about his mission, he affirmed that he had escaped from the encampment of Saul. That is to say, he had escaped from the very place in which the battle with the Philistines had occurred. When David asked the furtherment of his mission, he went on to share this information. David asked how the battle had gone. The man said that it did not go well for Israel, and in fact many are dead and fallen. And of that number, both Saul and Jonathan also were dead. In that day and time, it was a rather serious matter when the king himself lost his life. For in fact, the king was one looked upon in greatness and majesty. And here was this man who, again, had, did not have his name revealed, who informed David that the king of Israel was now dead. David questioned him further and asked, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? It was at this point that the man made the following admission. He himself stated that he had happened by and came upon the wounded Saul. In the aftermath of being wounded, Saul asked him to take his life so that he would not fall into the hands of the enemy. The man told David that he did that very thing and thus killed King Saul. As the man made that statement to him, he offered evidence to the fact that he brought Saul's crown as well as his bracelet, affirming that he was in fact, at least in his mind, affirming the truth. We might well notice that upon what he brought to David, 1st 2nd Samuel chapter 1 races forward with David in verses 13 to 16, asking him yet again, How could you lay your hands upon the Lord's anointed? How could you bring to death and, in fact, remove the life from the one who was the anointed of the Lord? And, in fact, on that occasion, David commanded one of his own soldiers, if you will, to take the life of that young man. In fact, David affirmed that his own mouth had testified against him, for he admitted to have taken the life of David. Might we pause to somewhat reflect of the great honor that David seems to have had for Saul, the great honor and respect that he had for him, and not only that, such honor that brought him to in fact take the life of this one who claimed to have taken Saul's life. Beginning in verse 17 and continuing through verse 27, we find the Song of the Bowl, a song that David had compiled and composed and asked that it be taught to Israel as a commemoration of the life of Saul and a commemoration of the life of Jonathan. That song stated many great and wonderful things about Saul and Jonathan, their greatness, their power, their honor, and the success they had enjoyed as leaders of Israel. But might it be noted, through all those statements and through all those things to be affirmed, the great mourning that David felt on the behalf of both Saul and Jonathan. It would not at all be inappropriate here to notice that Jonathan and David, earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, had become the dearest of friends. They had been there to aid and support and help each other. They had been there often in greatly difficult and challenging times and had been there all along as support for one another. Having noted all those things, somewhat briefly about the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1, I would ask you to note some lessons that we might be able to appreciate from them. The first lesson is perhaps a rather interesting one in the sense that it seems strange. 
We noted a moment ago that this man claims to have put Saul to death. This man who came and testified before David that he himself had killed Saul. The reason that that is so interesting is that it has become fodder over the years for some who have accused the Bible of having errors within it due to that very story. Because you see, in 1 Samuel 31, the record of Saul's death is there presented differently. And thus some have said, aha, here the Bible is contradicting itself. 1 Samuel 31 affirms Saul died in one way. 2 Samuel 1 affirms he died in a different way. Might we look a bit more closely at that? Are there really contradictions to be seen between those two chapters? Let us look more closely at what 1 Samuel 31 had claimed. In 1 Samuel 31 on Mount Gilboa, the text had affirmed that there Saul had been wounded in battle. And rather than to be killed by the enemy, he committed suicide. He took his own life. And in that way, that's a different tale than what this man had told David in 2 Samuel 1. For this man claimed that he had killed Saul. Was the man telling the truth? He was not. This man lied to King David. No doubt he was motivated by a number of thoughts, not the least of which was the fact that he thought that since David and Saul were perceived to be enemies, that if he in fact had killed Saul's en uh, David's enemy and had brought the evidence of that to David, that David would reward him and that David would elevate him to high status and stature in the kingdom. Thus, in bringing the crown as well as the bracelet, no doubt he expected great favor from David when in fact David responded exceedingly differently. Two points might be worthy of remark. Notice two of the things this man did say. He said he happened by and that he was the one who killed Saul. Well, first of all, given Saul's motivation in 1 Samuel 31, why would not his, one of his own Israelite fellow soldiers have been asked to take his life rather than an enemy Amalekite? And furthermore, could it really be believed that he would allow an enemy, an Amalekite, to take his life as the cherished and honored king of Israel? neither of which is really a believable and acceptable matter, that again testifies that this man lied to David. David, of course, believed him and took his own life. That does lead us maybe to the next observation, though, the importance and the non-trivial nature of lying. Lying throughout all the sacred volume is portrayed as a very serious matter. The truth is vital. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding, the writer of Proverbs reminded us. Did we not remember from the ninth of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not bear false witness, Exodus 20, verse 16. Can we not also recall the inspired apostle, as Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, warning them in Ephesians 4, 25, Wherefore put away lying, speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor. And lest we overlook or forget it, the Bible closes in Revelation 21, reminding us that of those who will not enter those pearly and beautiful gates of heaven, those whose names who are not written in the Lamb's book of life will include those who are liars. Revelation 21.8. It is a significant matter to re ever recollect then that the truth in all circumstances is that essential and that important. This man learned that lesson too late, for his life was taken from him. But can we not understand also perhaps one other lesson? 
we briefly had made note that David seemed to have great respect for Saul. Offhand, we might question how and why that ought to be. In 1 Samuel 17, David had enjoyed victory over Goliath. And from the next chapter forward, Saul chased David for ten chapters over the whole countryside of Palestine, not trying to compliment him, not trying to commend him, but rather hopeful of taking his life. On two occasions, in fact, he whirled a javelin at David and came close to, in fact, taking his life, but on two of those two occasions he failed. How could David then have respect for a man who was his enemy? How could David have such honor and consideration for this very one who, if he had the chance, would have taken David's life? Doesn't that speak volumes about the kind of individual that David was and the kind of respect that he had for authority? Let me call to your attention, if I might, the very language that David used here in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Note the question he asked in verse 14. How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David employed the phrase, the Lord's anointed, to describe Saul. He was, in fact, the first chosen king of Israel. God handpicked him. Might we remember that Samuel was told to anoint Saul as the first king in 1 Samuel chapters 19 and 11. And on that occasion, David had respect for him as the leader of the kingdom, the leader of the people. He understood what great responsibility rested upon Saul's shoulders, and he honored him throughout his life for that very office that he occupied. David did not, of course, encourage and support Saul in his attempt to kill David, for David knew that he was innocent, but he nonetheless had respect for the man. Doesn't that speak volumes of the respect you and I ought to have for any person occupying a position of authority that has been ordained by God? Consider in the family, the husband, the wife, the parents, if you will, the, uh, are those who have been given the authority in that family. And thus, to children, they are told to obey father and mother, Ephesians 6, verse 1. In the next verse, to honor them. You see, in the same way then that David took upon himself to respect the authority that was vested in the office held by Saul, might we understand, too, the responsibility that is ours to have respect for those occupying the positions of authority that God has ordained. And the family is just one example. And by the way, what a terrible thing it is then to affront that respect and to despise it. In Romans 13, 1, we read also about the authority that God has ordained in the civil authorities. You see, the power that is is ordained of God. And thus, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. You and I may not always approve what our elected officials do. We may not approve the decisions that they make, but they are serving in an office and in a position of authority that's ordained by the God of heaven. And hence, we should act respectfully toward them, and we should act toward them in a way appreciative of the office that they hold. That valiant lesson David well understood, and that valiant lesson you and I would do well to appreciate yet today. Isn't it amazing that as Paul did his preaching in the first century, he served beneath the terrible ruler we often know of as Nero, a person who at times, quite frankly, was insane. 
Yet not once did David ever speak, or rather did Paul ever speak about him in language that was disrespectful. Never once did he speak about Nero as being one who was in fact to be insulted. Later in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, even Peter, though he himself lived again under those monarchical rulers in Rome, said, Honor the king. Though again, the king made many decisions for which Christians could never be greatly supportive. Nonetheless, they were to honor him. David knew that lesson, and you and I also should appreciate applying that to heart. And doesn't that take us into the heart of the second chapter of 2 Samuel? I'd invite you to turn the page with me as we study some of the next chapter as well. Again, to note some of the things that can be said about it. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 2, we appreciate that David asked and approached God, desirous of knowing the answer to a question. Recalling that he was still in Ziklag, he asked whether he should go up into Judah. Isn't it interesting that he sought the perfect place for answer to that question? He didn't rely upon his own judgment, nor did he rely upon his own thinking, but rather he approached God and asked, Should I go up to Judah? God not only answered that question, but he even told him where to go. You go up to the city of Hebron. Interestingly enough, as the chapter rolls forward, we shall find that will be the place where David will have his first capital as the ruler and as the king over Judah. As the chapter proceeds, we can also appreciate and see that David did exactly what God directed. He left Ziklag, took not only his men but his wives as well, and proceeded to this place, to the place of Hebron. We have here the listing of two of David's wives. One of them was named Abigail, one was named Ahinoam. As David moves and comes to the place here known as Hebron, we quickly find, though, that things are not all as well as one might appreciate. It begins so wonderfully. The men of Judah welcomed David with open arms. And in fact, they, in verse number 4, as Brother Greg read earlier, proclaimed David their king. Let us notice again the reading of verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. For the first time, David becomes king. He had enjoyed great victories over many who were the enemies of Israel, not the least of which were sometimes the Philistines, the Amalekites, and others, and now Judah. Only one of the tribes appoints David as their king. Thankfully, and somewhat shortly, we shall find that the other tribes also will acclaim him as king, but there first is a bit of business which must be taken care of. That business begins in the very next observation, beginning in verse number 8. Prior to observing that, one of David's first acts as king of Judah is to pay compliments and great commendation toward the men of Jabesh-Gilead for the simple act that they had taken Saul's body and properly buried it. One last note about the honor and respect that David had for Saul. He, again, in his official rule, rulership as king, complimented these men of Jabesh-Gilead for burying the body of Saul. That now brings us to verse number 8, and several more names are now mentioned before us. We remember that Saul had been the first king of Israel. In that day and time, it was typically expected that the son or another family member would become the next king upon the death of the current king. 
Saul had more than one son. Though Jonathan had been killed in battle, there were others, and one particularly here is named. His name was Ishbosheth. As Ishbosheth was placed on the throne, he took the position, having been placed there by Abner, who was in fact a cousin to, to, to Saul. And one more thing to be noted. Abner was the commander-in-chief of Saul's forces. Today, we have often seen what a great influence a military man can have in office. We find here that this man, Abner, who not only was the commander-in-chief of Saul's forces, in addition to that, he was a cousin and he placed Ishbosheth on the throne. We now have, if you will, a division. David was ruling in Hebron over Judah, but Ishbosheth was reigning primarily over the remainder of the tribes. But note, if you would, the place where he was reigning from in verse 8. The little village known as Mayanaim. The position was ever so intriguing. Mayanaim was in fact on the eastern side of the Jordan River in the, actually the place of Gilead. Amazing, isn't it, that Abner had chosen that place to be the initial capital of Ishbosheth. But nonetheless, that's the choice that he made. In the verses that follow, there was contention and strife between the camps. David ruling in one place, Ishbosheth reigning from another. Needless to say, beginning in verse number 9, a conflict, a battle ensued. We find at a given place known as Gibeon, Abner's forces and Joab's forces came together and they were going to decide once and for all who was the superior battle, who was the superior one, and who would be the ruler. Twelve men from each one were chosen. Twelve men of Abner's forces, twelve men of Joab's forces. They proceeded to hotly contest the battle. It seems that it was an overwhelming victory for Joab's forces. The language of verse number 15 is this. Then there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And they caught every one his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together, wherefore that place was called Helkathazuzum, which is Gibeon. Gibeon would henceforth be known as the place wherein this battle had taken place, and David's forces were the superior ones. That did not close the fullness of the matter, however, for Ishbosheth will need to be dealt with, and so too will Abner. And so, beginning in verse 18, we have the note of three of the sons of Zeruiah were present on the occasion of this battle. The names are given as these. Joab was one, Abishag was another, and finally Asahel was a third one. As these three are thus presented, we quickly see the language is that Asahel was a very able runner, able to swiftly flee and run fast. He fled after Abner on the occasion of the battle. When he caught up with him, however, Abner's initial decision was not to kill him, but nonetheless Asahel would not turn aside. And finally, Abner took his life. Here thus we see one of the sons of Zeruiah was slain. Shall we not notice in the occasion of this occurrence the greatness and thoroughness of what has been set before us, the loss of life and the occasion of battle, the difficulty surrounding the loss of those twelve lives and now the loss of yet another. We notice that the other two sons of Zeruiah also pursued Abner when they caught up to the place where their brother 
Asahel had been slain, we notice that a conversation ensues with Abner. Finally, a degree of peacefulness is made. That peacefulness, however, will not be long settled. For in the next chapters, we shall find that this same matter will come up again, and yet Abner will be slain, and so too will Ishbosheth. The thought of that chapter closing leads us perhaps to notice also some of these things as well. A couple more observations. The things that might well be noted. We see the sweet singer of Israel elevated to the first king, the king of Judah. We often see in the later books of the Old Testament that David became the standard by which the other kings would be judged. He became the standard by which they appreciated faithfulness and godliness. Isn't it wonderful to think about a standard like that? Rather than a standard, say, like Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin, as is so often stated in 1 Kings. Can you and I not appreciate the great theme and the great idea of an example? David, the one through to whom the others will be compared. Even the Jews of the New Testament appreciated that thought. In Matthew 22, did they themselves not make note of the greatness of David's reign and how that the other kings following him were compared to him? As often as that thought is made, note some of the characteristics that made David that great. First of all, the great confidence and courage that he had. Confidence to in fact meet all the enemies of Israel, not based on his own strength but based on the strength of the God who was with him. That's how he had in fact faced Goliath. Never did he take credit for that victory for himself. He said, the God of Israel shall defeat thee. And it was that God of Israel that did so. David was a meek man, an humble man, relying ever so much on God's greatness to operate through him. And later in chapter 11, when he makes that great mistake, We'll find then his meekness was taken. He slipped and fell. But thankfully he came to his senses in repentance and strove again to follow the God whom he loved and cherished. The thought might also be noted about the wars and fightings that shall occupy our mind through much of the chapters that now will follow. This enemy's nature between Israel on the one hand and Judah on the other how wonderful it would have been for the empire to have begun in peace, and yet they're already fighting. That fighting will occupy many, many chapters yet to come. The sadness of that leads us to see that what is the source of fightings and wars and enemies? Is it not the lusts that occupy the thoughts and minds of men, as we read in James 4, verses 1 and 2? Oh, today, when we appreciate that our nation is still at war, from our beginnings in 1776 onward, how many wars have we as a nation fought? How many lives have been lost? How many sons and daughters have given the supreme sacrifice of their physical life in the embodiment of the pursuit of the defense of liberty and freedom? We now are yet fighting another. If only the peacefulness and unity and harmony that God had desired amongst them could have been maintained rather than the lusts that occupied the thoughts and minds of those of the family of Saul. Saul had been told by Samuel, even before Samuel's death and before Saul's death, that God had chosen another ruler better than him. If only Saul had well appreciated and been happy to understand that thought. But sadly he had not. And now Abner placed his own son, or rather the son 
Ishbosheth on the throne. And the war that erupted and resulted was indeed a tragic one. As we come to that point, perhaps some closing summary thoughts about the opening two chapters of 2 Samuel. I've listed them in these words. First of all, in chapter number 1, we noted the observational point and the thing that could be seen. If we get to the correct slide, the historical thought about the nature of the book of 2 Samuel, where it fits into the whole scheme of the Old Testament, and the kinds of information and perspective that it does set before us. We have seen the elevation of David as the first king of the second king of Judah. They had been ruled by Saul, and now they openly welcome the rule of David. The other tribes will be a bit slower in that welcome to David. It will come, however. We shall need about three more chapters to ultimately see it. But then David will take his rightful position as the second king of the united Israel. And in his leadership, he often will exhibit the highest of marks toward the character of God's nature for them. Tonight, perhaps we can see this. The difficulty and terror of lying, as we saw in chapter 1. The fact that there are no contradictions in the Bible. The interesting scene in chapter 2 of David's appointment as the king of Judah, followed by that battle between the forces of Joab and those of Abner. This evening, this Old Testament thing has reminded us of some matters of New Testament significance, hasn't it? We have hinted at some of them. Might we ever appreciate that these stories of killing and murder of the Old Testament do not, of course, approve those actions. Life is precious. Life is, in fact, of such great honor that God is the giver of it. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. To quote Psalm 139, verse 14. The greatness thus of life, whether it be the life that's before us today, or that life that is yet to come in generations that follow, may we wisely behave ourselves to set before them the greatest of all examples, the example of a Christian life. This very evening, are you a Christian? Are you born again? Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. There thus is no option about failing to do that and yet being pleasing to God. If you have not been born again in the act of baptism, for that's how the Lord defined it in John 3 verse 5, we could aid you in that tonight. Do you believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Have you repented of your sins? Have you powerfully and beautifully confessed Jesus as the begotten Son of God? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If the answer to any one of them is no, it is time to make things right with God. If you have been baptized, but you have failed to walk the sweet walk through this life in faith, come back to your first love tonight as you repent and confess, and we will pray with you and for you. If we could be of assistance to you this evening, we'd be happy to do that. Well, together we stand and while we sing.